And then in verse 4, Jude gives us the reason why the church is to contend for the faith. He says certain people, and we've talked about these certain people being false teachers, people leading people astray with false teaching, and, and not just false teaching, but the way they're living their lives. They're leading people astray. He says certain people have crept into the church unnoticed. And then uh, we labored through verses 5 through 16. And Jude tells the church these false teachers as a result of their ungodly lives and uh, the way they're living and uh, the examples they're presenting, they pollute the church. And he says you can be sure, based on what we see in the Old Testament, that the examples of those who rebelled against God, those who sinned against God in the past, God has judged them and He will do the same to these folks that we see here in the letter of Jude. So, beginning with our text today, Jude tells us this. He tells us how we are to contend for the faith. How we're to contend for the faith. So, we have why we are to contend for the faith. He's told us that. Here's why you need to do that. And it's always good when you tell people why to tell them how. Here's some tools for doing that. So, this is what Jude's doing. So, the main idea we're going to be looking at in the passage today, verses 17 through 23, is this. How to contend for the faith. Jude has exhorted us. We must contend for the faith, church. Christian, we must contend for the faith. And so, Jude's going to tell us how to do that. So, if you will, look at verses 17 through 19, and I'll outline as we go. And here's what we see in verses 17 through 19. Contend for the faith by remembering the Word of God. Contend for the faith by remembering the Word of God. Thus, if you'll just look at your uh, bulletin, you see the title of the sermon, Remembering, Keeping, and Showing. That's sort of the way this is outlined for you. So, contend for the faith by remembering the Word of God. He said, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of the Lord Jesus. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Notice in verse 17 that Jude calls the church to do what? What does he tell the church to do? Remember. Jude is telling us here that Christians are to remember the various biblical warnings concerning false teachers and false teaching. He's saying remember these things. The Word of God gives us, He he gave these uh, people in Jude's time, obviously it was the Old Testament because that's all they had at the time. He's saying remember the teachings of the Bible. Now you and I today... We live in a time where we have what? Both the Old and the New Testament. We have a lot more teachings. And so we want to listen to what Jesus says about this particular subject in Matthew chapter 24. Don't turn there. Here Jesus gives a warning to His followers right before His death and His resurrection and eventually His ascension back to heaven. Jesus tells His disciples and listens to the word of Jesus. He says, Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. So before Jesus dies to atone for sin and rises from the dead to save sinners, He's already doing what to His disciples? He's warning them that there's going to be false prophets. There's going to be false teachers come to this world and lead people astray. Well, in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30, the Apostle Paul there, he's, he's meeting with the, the elders, the pastors, the leaders of the church in the city of Ephesus. And listen to what he says to them. Paul is getting ready to leave them to continue doing his missionary journeys and going on his way of church planning and and proclaiming the gospel. And this church at Ephesus is established. It has leaders and he's talking to these leaders. And listen to what he says. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock 
in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. What is he telling these leaders? God's put you in charge. You're over this flock. You need to be overseeing and paying attention. And then he goes on to say, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I don't know about you. Some people wonder, how, how, how serious of a thing is the church to God? How serious is the church to Jesus? Well, I read those words there that Jesus obtained the church by shedding his own blood. I think it's pretty important. The church is very important to Christ. And then Paul goes on to say in verses 29 through 30, I know that after my departure... Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. What is he saying there? They're going to come in and listen. They're not going to spare anyone. They're going to try to lead as many astray as possible. Then he says, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. Remember these teachers? They were what? Perverting the gospel. They're going to come up from among yourselves. And they're going to speak twisted things. And here's what their intention is, is to draw away the disciples after themselves. There are many other passages in the New Testament that give this warning. Judas saying to the church, remember those words. Remember the teachings of Scripture in order to contend for the faith. Jude means not only that they should recall the words to mind, but also that they should take them to heart in a way that affects their thinking and their behavior. So he's saying, remember the teachings of Scripture. If you want to be able to contend for the faith, church, contend for the faith, Christian, you must remember the teachings of the Word of God. It's pretty simple. He's saying, reflect on what we know to be true from the Scriptures. Look at verse 18. Jude summarizes the, the warning uh, to the, uh, here. He says, they said to you, he's summarizing the teachings of the apostles, the teachings of, of Scripture, in the last times there will be scoffers, Following their own ungodly passions. What is he telling the church here? He's saying, look, in the last time, and these words, we've talked about this. Biblical authors used these words, and they were referring to a specific period of time. They were saying, from the time that Jesus came initially to come into the world, to redeem the world from their sins, and until Jesus comes again for his church, all that time in between is what, church? It's the, it's the last time. Times. It doesn't refer to the last few months or, or years right before Jesus comes, but you and I are living in the last times. So understand it that way. You and I are living. Like I told you before, if someone ever says, do you think we're living in the last times? What can you say? Well, absolutely we're living in the last times. But it's, you need to clarify that it's a lot different than what some people may think. Ever since Jesus comes until He returns, we've all been living in the last times. And notice the type of people we should expect to come across as we're living in these last days. Jude says that the apostles warned of what kind of people? Scoffers. Some of you have translations that are mockers. That's what that word means. What is it exactly these people are scoffing at? Or what are they mocking? If we're careful and we look at the content of the whole letter of Jude here, not just this, but... The whole letter, it seems that they're mocking God and God's moral, holy standards. They're not directly saying words that are mocking, but their actions and the way they live their lives and pulling people astray, they are mocking God in His holiness. That's what they're doing. This mocking is visible in the way they live their lives. Look at verse 18. It says, they follow what? Their own ungodly passions. Some of you have translations that has the word lust. This refers to... Again, uh, you're, probably, you're probably going, some of you are going, I'll, I'll be glad when we get done with this particular topic. These perverted uh, teachers are leading people astray. 
And this refers to perverted sexual sins, what it's referring to. Again, this perversion describes the way these people live their lives. And they do it, remember, they do it without shame. Remember, Jude says they're like brute beasts. They're like animals. They have no shame whatsoever. And they're leading other people astray. Uh, There are two issues with this following their own godly lust. These perverted men, Jude has already told us what will happen to them. God will judge them. And God will punish them. Jude says, make no mistake, judgment upon these people is coming. And remember, don't be in there with them because the judgment of God will come upon you as well. And second, if the church turns a blind eye to this perversion, hoping that it might go away, I think Jude is warning us, don't be so naive to think if we just turn a turn a blind eye and we think this will just go away. Jude says we can't do that because sexual sin can pollute the church. And here's what it does. It lures other people away. Did you remember what Paul said? These wolves will come in and they'll rise up from among you. And what is their goal? To pull the disciples away. As a matter of fact, when we get to verses 22 and 23, we'll see that some members of the church had already fallen into this sinful lifestyle of these false teachers. And we'll talk about that when we get there. Jesus is given a warning. He's given a warning here. So what should we ask? What is the solution? In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes to Timothy, young Timothy, an elder at the church in Ephesus, and he warns him about false teachers. Listen to what he has to say to Timothy. He said, but understand this, in the last days, so they talked about the last days quite often. There will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like these guys that Jude's been talking about, does it not? He says, they have appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. And here's what he says. Avoid such people. So what should the Ephesian church and the church Jude is writing to do about these false teachers? They should avoid such people. Stay away from those who tempt you. Do what it takes to keep yourself from those who are welcoming the judgment of God on their lives. That's a warning. Stay away from those folks. When people like this creep into the church, and after a while they begin to show who they really are, Jude says we need to avoid them. That doesn't mean we pretend that nothing has happened and we hope that it will go away. Jesus Himself, and we've talked about this over the last couple of weeks, gives the church a way to deal with things like this when it happens. Jesus gives the church the means by which the church, and I know this, is, this sounds harsh, He gives the church the means for removing unrepentant people who give no evidence of salvation. Jesus Himself says, this is my church. And when people creep into the church and they begin to, their their sinful lifestyles, their unrepentant lifestyles, their unregenerate life comes to the surface, here's the means for the church to respond to those situations. And yes, go after them to restore and those who refuse to repent those who continue to pursue a, a pattern of sinful lives, he says, here's the means that we, in which we deal with those folks. Now, what are we to do? You're thinking, man, man that, that sounds 
Sounds kind of hard, does it not? What are we to do? First and foremost, here's what we must do. We pray for the salvation of lost souls. First and foremost, we pray for the lost. The biblical conversion of sinners. That is the first and foremost thing on our mind. Let us pray for repentance in our own lives, in our own church. And even on a larger scale, the church as a whole in our country. We need to pray that the church will wake up and live in these last days in a way that honors the Lord. Let's also pray for this subject I've been talking about. The the return of biblical, restorative church discipline. And that God would bless and prosper those churches that practice that. Let's pray for the church to look more like Jesus than the world. And let us pray that with God's help, we would be a holy church that does not disgrace the name of our Savior. Let's seek with a fervent passion to put sin to death in all of our lives as individual Christians. When is the last time we prayed for God by His grace to help us to put sin to death in our life? When's the last time you've done that? When is the last time you prayed and said, God, help me to put this sin to death in my life. Help me to kill this sin in my life. Look at verse 19. Jude gives us a further description of what these false teachers are like. He says it's these who cause divisions. Worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Notice he says they cause divisions. How do they cause divisions? In all likelihood they cause division between those who choose to follow them... And those who have remembered God's Word and identify them as sinful. Remember, some people have heard the Word of Jude. We can sort of infer that. They've heard what Jude has said, and they're looking and they're seeing sinfulness, and they're pointing that out, and it causes some division. Keep in mind that Jude has, in verse 16, told us that these particular false teachers, they do what? They show favoritism toward those who are rich, which would cause what? Wouldn't that cause division in the church as well? In verse 11, we see that they rebel against the authority like Korah did, which would cause division between themselves and the leaders of the church. Do you see what sinful living and sinful life can lead to in the church? It causes division. Whatever divisions they may have caused, the main concern is that these divisions harm unity in the church. Jude says divisions caused by sinfulness can cause harm and damage to the unity of the church. And here's the question I want to ask you when it comes to this subject of unity. Why is unity in the church so important? Think about that. Why, why is unity so important? Most of, our, most of us are going, well, we've got to get along. We need to be in unity, right? Why is unity in the church so important? Unity is important because it bears witness to the gospel. That's why it's important. And it points people... To Jesus, It points people to the Savior who through the power of the gospel makes us one even though we are so vastly different. The church best demonstrates the power of the gospel when young and old, rich and poor, black and white, all of which love one another, come together and they share life together. You may ask, what is so important about that? It's important because here's what happens, church. The unbelieving world looks at us and they have no explanation why are these people this way. They 
have no worldly, they have no explanation. They can look at the church, they can look at unity, they can look young, old, rich, poor, black, white, and they go, what in the world is it that brings them together? What is our answer, church? It's Jesus and the power of the gospel to change lives. Unity is important because for churches without it, no one wants Jesus. The world does not want what we have unless there's unity within the church. Notice also in verse 19, these false teachers are worldly minded. Some of you may have a translation that reads natural or or sensual. The word has the idea of people who are worldly in their values, uh, they're natural minded and they're unspiritual. Their thinking does not have a spiritual aspect to it. They're consumed with the things of this world, consumed with getting ahead in life, and this world is all they're living for. Look again at verse 19. Jude says they're devoid of the Spirit. Literally, what does that mean? They don't have the Spirit. Now that is really important. Romans chapter 8 verse 9 says, If you do not have the Spirit of Christ in you, you do not belong to Him. That's pretty clear, is it not? Paul is saying, if you don't have the Spirit living within you, of Christ living within you, you don't belong to Him. How do we have the Spirit living in us? We hear the Gospel. We respond to that Gospel, repenting of sin and turning from sin and trusting in Jesus. And at the moment that happens, the glorious Spirit of the Holy God comes to live within us. And that verse is saying, if you don't have the Spirit living within you, you are no Christian. You don't belong to Him. And I think Judah is simply saying that these people are... I think what he's saying is they're, they're lost. It's obvious that because of their unrepentant lifestyles, they refuse to obey the Scriptures. These people are not Christians. They're not followers of Jesus. I think that's what Jude is saying. Here's what we need to understand. Now listen to me carefully. This will help us in more ways than we realize. Lost people act like lost people. We cannot expect them to act any other way. Right? You ever get frustrated with somebody that's lost and think, why do they do that? It's because they're lost. Can I tell you something? They're supposed to act that way. That's the way lost people act. Stop thinking about your life before you come to know Christ. That's enough. Some of you need to stop thinking right there and don't go any further. All of us know that what, what happens when a bad apple gets in the, the basket at the house? If you don't get that bad apple out, what happens? I love to eat apples and we keep them in the little pantry room there and it's a little bit cooler in there. But if you, if you leave one in there too long, what happens to the rest of them? The whole basket goes bad. You want to know why so many churches are so unhealthy these days? It's because they're full of lost people that we've allowed to come in and become members of the church. And guess what? They get in and they act just like you'd expect them to act. They act like what? They act like lost people. A friend of mine uh, that I was... Uh, Serving with in the church before I came here, we, we were located in North Raleigh and we moved to Wake Forest. But prior to, to moving, um, he, he left and went back to Mississippi to pastor a church. And um, he'd been there for a few months and realized there was something terribly wrong going on. Uh, there was uh, a couple of people in leadership positions within the church who were not married and they were living together. And so... As any good pastor should do, he addressed the issue. Well, you can imagine what happened. That went over like a lead balloon, right? Seventeen people got upset. 
and left the church because a pastor stood on the Word of God and called people to repent and turn from sin. Alex, who was just here uh, filling in for us, was a pastor of the church near the Hosky area, and he took a stand against the same type things, and he was told to either drop it or he could leave. Well, you know the outcome of that situation. Look with me at verses 20 and 21. Here we see you tell the church the second way to contend for the faith. You contend for the faith by growing spiritually. You contend for the faith by growing spiritually. He says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Jude is going to show us here how we are to grow spiritually. In these two verses, there is one command that's given. It's found in verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. That's the, that's the one verb, that's the one command of action there. Keep yourselves in the love of God. But also notice the words building, praying, and waiting. These words describe for us how we keep ourselves in the love of God. So you see that? Keep yourselves in the love of God. And here's these three ways that we do that. We do it by building, growing spiritually. And part of that is praying and waiting for Jesus. So let's start with verse 21. What does it mean to keep yourselves in the love of God? It would be better to start with what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean to keep God loving you. Does everybody understand that? This is yes. It doesn't mean you keep God loving you. How do we know that? Well, we go to, uh, back to verse 1 and Jude says, he's telling the believer that they are beloved in God the Father and they're kept for Jesus Christ. God has set His love on the believer and nothing can ever change that. Nothing can change God's love for you. You don't have to worry about whether God will keep loving you. He's already said He's going to do that. And God does not lie. God is not going to stop loving the believer. It's not you working to keep God loving you. So what does Jude mean by keeping yourselves in the love of God? It means this. To keep yourself in the place where you'll experience God's love to the greatest degree. That's what it means. Keep yourself in the place where you'll experience God's love to the greatest degree. Those other three words I mentioned there tell the believer how he can experience the blessing of God upon his life. Here's the idea. When you as a believer, listen to me, when you are growing spiritually, you'll experience the greatest degree of blessing of God's love that there is. When you are growing... Listen, does everyone understand? You're not going to do anything to keep God loving you, right? But there are things you can do in order to experience God's love for you to the highest possible level that there is in Judas telling us here. According to Jude, spiritual growth involves these three things. Building yourselves up in the most holy faith. What is the most holy faith? I think it's the gospel of Jesus. I think that's what that's talking about. It's most holy. Why would the faith be most holy? Because it comes from a God who is what? Holy. And when that... Faith, when that gospel comes to us, it takes unholy ones and it turns them into what? Saints. It turns them into holy ones. Jude tells a believer that growing in his knowledge of the faith and the gospel keeps the believer in the love of God, which keeps him contending for the faith. And how does one, and how does growing in this, in his knowledge of the faith happen? How does that happen, church? When you spend time 
Meditating and reading God's Word. That's how you grow in the faith. You as a believer cannot expect to grow if you avoid the Word of God. Can I tell you something? It just will not happen. When you read and meditate and ponder and contemplate the Word of God, the Holy Spirit works through the Word to transform your mind, which transforms your life. You begin to think like God. You take on the standards of God. The Spirit transforms you so that you have the desires that God has. This results in you having an appreciation and a gratefulness for all that He's done for you and saving you. Do you want to grow, Christian? Jude says, build yourselves up in the faith, and you cannot do that apart from the Word of God. Look at verse 20. Second, the believer keeps himself in the love of God by what? Praying in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Spirit is prayer that is guided by the Spirit. Now listen, I want to be clear. This is not a special kind of prayer that's privileged to only a few people. It's the way the believer is supposed to pray. What came before praying? Keeping yourselves, building yourselves up. And how do we do that? In the Word of God. Did you know that when you're reading the Word of God, that's the avenue in which the Spirit works through you to grow you. And it also works through that reading of the Word of God to help you to know how you are to pray. Praying in the Spirit. This is normal prayer. In other words, we seek the Spirit's help in praying fervently as we ought to pray. Prayer is crucial to growing in the Christian life. Can I tell you something? As your pastor, I know, again, this bothers some of you. My prayer life is where the Holy Spirit says, Gary, there's sin. You need to repent of that. Gary, there's sin in your life. And I wonder a lot of days if I never prayed, would I ever understand the sinfulness of my life and repent of that and be able to experience the love of God to the greatest degree that I possibly could experience? Notice thirdly in verse 21. He says, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to what? Eternal life. The word waiting has the idea of waiting in order to welcome someone. And to do it with great expectation. Jude is saying, live, church, live Christian with eternity in mind. Live life eagerly anticipating the return of Jesus. Notice we're to be waiting here for the mercy of Jesus. In verse 14 and 15, if you'll remember, we saw that at the return of Jesus... He's going to do what? He's going to judge the unbelieving and the ungodly, right? But as believers, we're waiting for what when Jesus comes? Mercy, not judgment. And that mercy leads to eternal life. So we're waiting. We're anticipating. We're longing. We're looking for the return of Christ in which the mercy we received at the initial salvation comes to its fullest extent and Jesus comes for us. We're waiting for the mercy of Christ which leads to eternal life. Now, Here's what I want to ask you. Do you long for Jesus to come? We've talked about this before. Do you know that the extent to which you long for Jesus to return is a good indicator of where your treasure is? How much time you spend contemplating and thinking about the return of Christ is a good indicator of where your treasure is. Are you distracted because you're in love with the things of this world and are thinking about them all the time? Again, can I tell you as your pastor, you're thinking, well, you're the preacher. You shouldn't be thinking about worldly things. Well, you know, worldly things can be a lot of things. And I have to check myself sometimes. You know, am I letting life here in this world get a grip on me to where I'm not looking and longing and expecting the return of Christ? Here's what I want to challenge you to do. This coming week, give give some thought to how often you ever contemplate the return of Christ. 
it just might be that you and I need to repent of our addiction to the things of this world and turn and look more to what awaits us in our future. Jude's telling you and I that becoming heavenly minded is part of growing as a Christian. Look at verses 22 and 23. And we'll finish up here. Here's the outline for verses 22 and 23. Contending for the faith by showing mercy. Contending for the faith by showing mercy. We remember the teaching of the Word of God that helps us contend for the faith. We're keeping ourselves in the love of God and then we're showing mercy. He says, have mercy on those who doubt, saving others. Listen to the wording. Listen to these words. Saving others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Jude here is giving us instructions concerning our attitude toward those who are affected by these false teachers. He's telling us that Christians are to show what church? Mercy. The church, believers, are to be on a rescue mission toward those who are influenced by false teaching. Did you hear that? We are to be on a rescue mission to show mercy, to pull people back. Notice in verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt. Some translations read, and on some have compassion, making a distinction. These are people who have have been confused by false teaching. They haven't bought into it yet, but they're confused by it. They're attracted to these false teachers' lifestyle, and because of that, they're wavering in their commitment to the faith. You might be thinking, how, how could that be possible? Well, think of someone who's young in the faith, who hasn't been a Christian very long, and someone begins to live this lifestyle, professing to be a believer, and, and again, we still have a sinful nature, even after we're saved, and you begin looking at someone who professes to be a Christian, and you see them living this way, and you're thinking, well, you know, it's, is it okay to do that? I, after all, I am saved, I'm going to heaven, can I, can I sort of dabble in this, and it, it'll, it'll be okay? And Jude says here, we need to have mercy on those who are thinking that way, those who doubt. How are we supposed to respond to them? We have mercy on them. This means that we're not to write them off or lose patience with them because they're doubting. Instead, we're to show mercy and we're to seek to restore them, to bring them back. Why? Because as Christians, we are to love and care deeply about other believers. We are to show mercy. Second, notice in verse 23... The wording here. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Do you see this progresses in intensity? People who are doubting, show mercy, and then the next group were to do what? Snatch them out of the fire. The word indicates to us that the influence of these false teachers has it's intensified. And this group has been affected to a greater degree than those who are doubting. They're, they're different from those who doubt. These people have made a choice to pursue and actually carry out their lives following these false teachers. That's what's happened. How are we to deal with them? We snatch them out of the fire. Can you snatch someone out of the fire if you're just sitting around and not doing anything? What is Jude saying? He's saying if these people remain in unrepentant sin... They will one day face the eternal fire of hell. He's saying you and I need to snatch them away from that. They're to be snatched out of the fire before they end up there. A person who continues on a course of rebellion against God proves that he's not a Christian and one day 
I don't know other way to put it. One day he will burn in hell if he does not repent of his sin. How do we, how are we to think about this? Showing mercy. We have a charge from God. If you truly love other members of the church, it's simple, church. We will run after them as fast as our little legs will carry us. Here's what some of us think about that. Now that you're sitting here, you're going, really? I'm to go after someone who's fallen into sin. I'm to go after them as another Christian and, and show mercy and, and pull them back. Some of us go, that's meddling. That's getting in other people's business, right? That's what we, that's what we think. To do such would be unloving. To, to get in someone else's business and to... And here's what most of us go, that's judging, right? I, I can't judge people. Matthew 7 says we do not judge, but he's talking to hypocrites. So you can just throw that out. Alright? We look at people's lives, and because we care about them and we love them, we're not meddling in their lives, we go after them. Let me ask you this. Tomorrow, suppose you get up and you look across the street, and the house across the street, there's smoke coming from one end, and you look at the other end, and there's flames, and all of a sudden you hear someone yelling for help, and you realize they're trapped in the house. Is it loving to say, well, it's not my house, so I shouldn't go inside. I'll just watch from the street and I'll yell encouragement and hope they make it out. No, that's not what you do. The most loving thing you could do is go in and try to rescue that person, is it not? Snatching them what? From the fire of destruction. The same way we are to go after one another, snatching each other from the eternal destruction of hell. Now some of you are asking... Why does Jude speak about snatching fellow church members from the eternal fire of hell? If these people are church members, aren't they believers? Listen carefully. God's saving grace in a person's life should bring about change in that person's life. Would you agree, church? Jude is warning this group with hell based on the way they are living. They give no evidence of being born again. That's what he's saying. Grace in a person's life produces change in that life. But there's no evidence of change in these people, is there? And because of that, Jude is right to speak of them as if they are unbelievers. The Bible is clear that being a church member means that a person is born again. We read the New Testament, we see over and over and over again, in order to be a member of the church, one must be born again. One must turn from sin and trust in Christ. Now I'm fully aware there are times when unbelievers get into the church. This happens when the, the church... Uh, well, Jude told us, right? These people crept in what? Unnoticed. They had no way of... They had nothing in place to ensure that people didn't get in. But even when the church is careful... A person can give all the right answers and they really seem to be saved and only later on to show that they're what? They're not. So it's very possible that some of these people led astray by the false teachers were not really saved to begin with. But they needed to be saved and for that reason, we do what? We show mercy and we reach, we go after them to snatch them from hell. This is part of what it means to be a church member. This is part of what it means to be a church. I mean, we're to seek to restore fallen Christians. 
Have you ever considered that? That's part of your responsibility as a member of the church is to go after and to restore people who fall into sin. I don't know about you. I hope my brothers and sisters in Christ would love me enough that if I fell into sin, they'd come get me and not leave me there. Over the last few weeks, I've mentioned the, the subject of restorative church discipline. Jesus taught it in Matthew 18. In that process... Jesus doesn't give the church the option of giving up. If you first go to someone and, it, and they don't repent, you don't give up. Jesus says you keep going after them. You do not give up. You seek to restore the one caught in sin. I believe you and I need to ask ourselves, are we willing to carry out this kind of responsibility? If you say, I don't think so, I want to suggest to you that maybe you've misunderstood what it means to be a church member. Are you understanding We are brothers and sisters in Christ. When a brother or sister falls into sin, another brother who loves and cares for him goes to get him. He does not leave him there. Look again at verse 23. This last group. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This group is totally trapped in sin to the point that their hearts are hardened. Does Jude say we ignore them, hoping that maybe... They might just go away. Do, do we condemn them? Do we, do we point our self-righteous finger at them? No, Jude says, you have mercy even on these. Again, we're to seek restoring of people. With this situation of someone trapped in sin, the fellow church members called on to restore him. But notice something, he's to do it with fear. Seek this person, but do it with fear. What, what does Jude mean by restoring with fear? The idea is to restore with fear of being infected by the sins of these people. Sin can often be attractive, and it can tempt even those who are going to rescue someone. The most reckless thing you could do is not guard yourself with fear, and you'd be caught up in the same sin as that person as well. Jude says that you are to... Notice he says you're to even hate the garment stained by the flesh. What does that mean? I think it's figurative language here. He's saying, it's like you're getting too close to someone and they got on dirty clothing. What happens? It sort of rubs off on you, right? Thus you get dirty as well. Those deep in sin can even defile those who are attempting to restore them. He says we must be careful when we go after them. You must be careful to avoid being caught in another person's sin. You must be careful if the sinner doesn't influence you instead of the other way around. So how do, we, how do we apply this to our lives? I think you make sure that you're spiritually mature enough to attempt to restore someone. Notice in verses 22 and 23 that before Jude tells the Christian to restore others who are in sin, he tells them in verses 20 and 21 to do what? Focus on your own spiritual growth. You need to be mature, growing in the faith before you go after someone to restore them. You need to check yourselves. Even if you're a mature Christian, you must be prayed up and your mind must be renewed by the Word of God before you attempt to go after someone. Jude tells the Christian that they need to keep watch over their own lives. The gospel must be at work in them in order to resist sin. Second, I want to say this and we'll be done. We're talking about growing in our faith and and going and restoring those who fall into sin. In order to do these things, to grow, 
in our Christian faith, to grow in our prayer life, and to grow in our expectancy of the return of Christ. We need each other to do that. We Listen, you ever heard the term, long-ranger Christian? Can I tell you, there is no such thing. Some people try that, and it just doesn't work. The things mentioned in verses 20 and 21 were meant to be done together in a community. A community where each member speaks the Word of God into the lives of others. A community where we seek to build up and edify one another. This cannot be done as individuals. So let me challenge you this week. Or let me just challenge you. We need to build a culture in our church where we speak the Word to one another and we encourage one another to keep ourselves in the love of God in order that we can contend for the faith. You cannot do this by yourself. It takes the church community working and sharing life together in order to be able to do these things. We cannot do them on our own. Let's pray.